Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. Welcome. I am Joy, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In this episode, we have two segments that we're going to weave together, both focused on investment theses. At Criterion, one of the most important levers of change, in our opinion, is to look at shaping, reshaping, creating the investment thesis that guides how investors see the future, right? At some level, what we do in finance, what we do as we invest is we look at the current reality, what's going on, and then we look out to the future and we imagine what might happen in the future. And then based on that, our investment thesis says, what should we invest in today, given our understanding of the risks and opportunities in the market in which we're investing? And so often in gender lens investing and and other socially responsible investing areas, we're at the back end, right? We're already to due diligence and making investments and figuring out whether or not it's a worthy company. But most of the ways that we assign value, most of the ways that we are shaping our investments have already been determined by them. We want to go all the way back to the beginning and say, what is the investment thesis underneath this fund, vehicle, product, whatever it is? And so we're going to look at this in two ways. One, just a broad exploration of an investment thesis and how we think about it in the, in the first segment. And in the second segment, we'll dig into one of my favorite projects that we have ever worked on, which is looking at an investment thesis for the Pacific region, uh, Pacific Island region. And so with support of the Australian government, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we looked at a future-oriented investment thesis for the Pacific Island region and say, how could that shape how investors saw possibilities for investment in that region? So we'll walk through that investment thesis as an example for how an investment thesis can shape how investors assign value. Enjoy. Investopedia describes an investment thesis as a, quote, reasoned argument for a particular investment strategy backed up by research and analysis. So my investment strategy is my approach to making investments. It's literally that. On what basis do I choose where and how I look for companies, value those companies, and then structure the particular investment vehicle, the type of investment that I'm making in those companies. And so my strategy is what breaks all of that out. It says how I do everything. My investment strategy drives everything about the implementation of my investments. The strategy, though, is informed by a thesis. And that thesis is almost always about the future. Because by definition, we make money 
in the future, right? Investors get their return in the future. It's because they invest in companies today that grow in the future or that are sustainable in the future or repay their loans in the future. Whatever it is, the money is returned in the future. And therefore, my investment thesis is about the future. So here's how an investment thesis works. I, as an investor, look out, say, 10, 15 years, looking at trends, data, patterns. What do I see going on? What do I see in shifts? Do I see places where I see opportunities that other people might be missing? Uh, let's say I'm sitting in 1995 and saying, uh, you you idiots, you're not seeing this internet thing growing. It's going to be huge. I'm going to invest in companies today that I think are going to capture value in that future. That's how an investment thesis works, right? It informs our strategy and says, here is the picture of a compelling future that then I look at companies today that will be positioned to capture that future. What's interesting is in impact investing, we focused much more on an impact thesis rather than an investment thesis. So even today, if you ask your average impact investing fund generously, I'll say one out of three have a clearly developed investment thesis. And I'll tell you why in just a second. It's not that they're idiots, it's that they've done some other things. The investment strategy often constructed by impact investors takes up a few different elements. One is that I am looking for impact. So I have what could be called an impact thesis. If I make these kinds of investments, here is the impact on the world. Here's the reduction of poverty or an increase in access to capital or a set of beneficial products that can make lives better for humans in X, Y, or Z way. I'm making an impact thesis that says, here is how I believe my investments, the companies that I invest in are going to make a difference. So that's your impact thesis. The second thing that often happens in impact investing or innovative finance is we engage more in company picking rather than a vision of a market. So for example, the investment fund that I founded with Kevin Jones and Tim Freundlich 15 years ago now, the companies that we were looking for were a certain stage of growth they were looking for a certain type of capital, and we were providing the capital that met those needs. Often in impact investing, we feel grateful that we found companies at all that are trying to create good and have the likelihood of being able to expand or grow in the ways that we as investors are looking them to, for them to. And so there's been a preponderance of a focus on company picking. I'm going to work in a general market on my geography is Southeast Asia or my geography is Australia or my geography is the Midwest of the United States. I'm looking for maybe agriculture investments. I might have a sector overall or I'm just looking for good investments, right? I'm looking for companies that I think will thrive and I'm picking those companies. So then what happened is in that company picking game, 
along comes diversity and inclusion, right? So the field of gender lens investing was fueled in many ways by people saying, as you're going out to make this impact, also look at the diversity of the leadership of the companies. Because again, if impact investors were largely company picking, then they were picking companies and often their bias would play out. I prefer leaders that are like me. I prefer leaders you know, that I feel comfortable around and that I know well, there's a lot of data that says, you know, we invest in the people we feel reflect us in some way. And so there's a push towards diversity. Make sure that you don't have bias in who you're investing in. And so when you're doing this company picking, when you get to that place of due diligence or screening, when you're looking at which companies you're going to put your money in, think carefully about whether or not you should invest with a more open approach. And so that's been the focus, right? What that didn't do, though, is it didn't change the investment thesis. So if I was looking for high growth agricultural companies in the Midwest of the United States that were looking to create some sustainable good, I was still looking for that but also caring whether or not I was only picking male company heads and I wanted to also encourage there to be more females. I wasn't changing my investment thesis. I was just changing how I picked companies. And therefore there became this focus on looking at due diligence processes and what questions you would ask that would be different in due diligence. But my questions in due diligence are determined by, yup, my investment thesis. And so if you wanted me to also care about diversity, that was adding something in to my due diligence that wasn't actually reflected in this core investment strategy, my investment thesis. And I can't tell you how many gender lens investing funds that I've reviewed over the years that basically had a vanilla investment thesis, but add women and stir and miraculously, it's going to be a gender lens investment. But it didn't change the investment thesis itself. So for example, why aren't we looking at a gender analysis of the agricultural markets in which we're working? Why aren't we looking at a gender analysis of usage of the internet? Why aren't we looking at a gendered analysis of whatever consumer market we're working in? And then saying, how can that gender analysis inform our investment thesis and therefore inform our investment strategy? How do you really ground it in the fundamental analysis that drives the choices that we're making. We talk about this as moving from back-end metrics to front-end analysis. How do you shape the underlying assumptions about what I think is going to happen in the future and therefore which companies I will invest in today? For about five years, Criterion worked within the context of a program called Pacific Rise. Pacific Rise was seeking to develop a expanded impact investment market in the Pacific, 
connecting investment funds to businesses that had social impact, and particularly with a focus on a gender lens in the region. One of the first things we did within that was build an investment thesis for the Pacific. The challenge that we encountered in early days of talking to investors is that they did not have a lens, they did not have a strategy, they did not have a way to look at the patterns in the Pacific and see opportunities. They largely saw problems. So for example, this investment thesis that we developed seek to reframe the problems faced with climate change, which are legion in the Pacific Islands, of course, not caused by them, but caused by the rest of the world being played out in the Pacific. But to reframe climate change still a problem, but reframe the opportunity to say, how do we find resilience in the face of climate change? And how can we learn from the remarkable resilience in the Pacific as an investment opportunity? And so we looked at a set of trends and sought to reframe how people saw the Pacific and shifting to say, well, yes, there, there are certainly problems. There are also opportunities. And how do we look differently at those opportunities in order to make appropriate investments? And so the six opportunities, the six themes of the investment thesis, each of them were intended to say to the investor, here is a hopeful, compelling vision of the future in the Pacific. And therefore, here are some opportunities that you could look at today that would capture that compelling future. What we were trying to do was to change how people saw opportunities in the future and therefore change how they saw the value of existing opportunities. So, for example, if they didn't see any value in the informal market, if their problem with the Pacific was that it was dominated by the informal economy, then looking at investments that were trying to manage the flow of goods and services within the informal economy or from the informal economy was not at all interesting because the informal economy was the problem. But what if you reframed it so that you could see value in the informal economy and then these investments don't look so crazy, look actually pretty cool. So to walk through these six, the first one was, as I've named, this resilience in the face of climate change. And my reason for walking through these is one is the Pacific is fascinating, but also because thinking about how to, how to bring together an investment thesis for a region that can catalyze a set of investors to act together was quite important and, and something I think that's relevant in other geographies or in other sectors. So the first one is resilience in the face of climate change. So climate change is seen as a fundamental threat for the future of the Pacific, and it is, not wanting to minimize that. But resilience is also an asset. The resilience, the fact that the Pacific has had to face climate threats earlier with more catastrophic consequences than many other regions, has meant that there, alongside that, have emerged innovations and adaptations that ensure a faster recovery from a typhoon. And so there's a, an importance in looking at that sort of proactive resilience as an important for their potential to slow or adapt its impact. So how do we keep, how do we look, for example, at the flow of capital, Asian Development Bank, 
has invested nearly $6 billion in sort of renewable energy, energy efficiency, building resilience in agriculture and urban settings. An investor could be the follow-on to the flow of capital that's already working to build out that resilience. The next is looking at value chains producing unique quality. Cocoa, coffee, seafood, timber, coconut oil, on and on and on. Amazing agricultural products, natural resources within these Pacific islands that create a sort of low. So the the question here is, do you see this as an extractive industry? And obviously, if you see these unique values as something that can be extracted, then they will be extracted and then they will not exist in the future. Part of the vision of the future that we're trying to put out is to say, well, what if you invested in the Pacific in such a way that you continue to ensure that there was unique quality, that these were not extractive industries, but rather strengthening the local economies? So rather than high-scale, low-end manufacturing, look at low-scale, specialized, unique products. Looking at things like an investment in value-added processing in-country. Don't just export the coconut oils to be manufactured in name your other country, but rather invest in the value-added processing in-country. And the gender lens here is incredibly important because women are often hidden influencers in these value chains. Understanding, seeing their role can improve productivity, reliability, the assumption that many of these value chains rely on gendered labor patterns, including family businesses, that understanding that, understanding that unique setup, understanding that how things work will enable more accurate investments, less extractive, more sustainable. Third, and this was one of the more radical ones, was looking at capturing the expanding value in the informal sector. In general, most investors assume that the informal sector is a problem. And the investment thesis is that the informal sector is being formalized. And once it's formalized, and voila, there'll be greater economic opportunities. The reality is that the likelihood that the Pacific Islands will be formalized might be a project if that's what they choose, and so be it. But in general, it is not that direction, right? And so how do we actually recognize that the informal sector is going to be with us for a very long time and that it is not the problem? How do we invest in the informal sector in locally sourced agricultural products, sophisticated textiles? The creative arts are grounded in the informal sector. So how do we invest in the informal sector? One of the amazing entrepreneurs in the region, unfortunately, she's died a couple of years ago was leading a company, her name was um, Virginia Bruce, and she led a company called Real Impact. 
And she was looking to invest in financing for informal businesses that would get them to sort of a least minimum viable enterprise, right? So what is the least change that needs to happen? How to not need to take an informal creative arts business and turn it into a large manufacturing system for it to work? What is a minimum viable enterprise that can support access to markets? Because in the end, so often the informal sector is gendered female. And in part because it's gendered female, it's undervalued. How do we check that bias and see the value and not sort of reinforce the undervaluing, the bias that exists in how we see informal economies, but rather see them as possibilities? Different, not necessarily as not scalable in the same way, not about mass production, but unique production and grounded production and sustainable production becomes possible. So fourth was looking at a geographic position mitigating political risk. Interestingly, the um, Pacific Islands are, we, we're playing with two ideas here. The Pacific Islands both have a relatively significant amount of political instability. But the trick was that if there's instability in one island, there isn't necessarily instability in all islands, right? These are independent nations. And so looking at that sort of the isolation of many of these islands as also mitigating political risk kind of an interesting idea, right? The sort of, we often think about, you know, the political risk that could happen in a country like Thailand, where if there's political instability in Bangkok, there's political instability throughout all of Thailand. And so the question is, how do we look at that more as the isolation in the Pacific Islands becomes a value, mitigates risk as opposed to increases risk? I'll be honest, that one was one of the harder ones to play out, but it's kind of creative. (laughs) So the next was looking at strength in domestic labor and purchasing power. So this one's looking at the, not at exports, because so much of what's looked at in the Pacific is what will be exported. In this case, it looks at the significant growth in the domestic market. How do we look at increases in the population? growing opportunities for youth, higher education, rather than a resilience on global capital, rather than a resilience on the global markets, looking at growing investments from local capital. What we discovered over and over again is that communities financed themselves, maybe not at the same scale as outside capital did, but with great efficacy. Women are also consumers and drivers in the domestic markets. And how can we look at the gender patterns that could inform diversification in really good ways around things like tourism or other, you know, fishing, right? This was one of the really interesting examples. There was a company called Alpha Fishing that was looking at growth. And in this case, they were largely looking to sell to the hotels within the region and the kind of tourism market. 
but they had a small part of their business or a medium sized part of their business that sold to female micro entrepreneurs who did value added processing and then sold that, um, the sort of fish products that came out of that to local bars or roadside stores. What was interesting is the bias of the investors who were looking at this company was let's look at the larger scale tourism industry, not these female micro entrepreneurs. But dig underneath it, that was actually the more sustainable and the more scalable and more resilient part of their business. They didn't have to compete at the same level because they had relationships with these micro entrepreneurs. And so that that shift became really important to say, how do we actually look at domestic labor purchasing power in the local economy, not just the sort of large scale, let's look at tourism and how tourism is bringing new growth, but then only really seeing tourism through the lens of the large chains, not through the lens of the local economy. And then finally, another piece that's connected to the isolation that exists in the Pacific is really looking at a in a positive way at the connected efficiently, the potential for a future connected efficiently through tech and transport. And again, this is a case where Australia had just made an announcement that it would spend about $137 million to lay an undersea internet cable between PNG, Papua New Guinea, the Solomons, and Australia, and increasing the internet speed. You also had infrastructure investments that were significant. How do we value that appropriately? How do we see that not as backstopping failure, but as an investment in a future that can be built on? And then from a gender lens, how can that help unleash women's untapped economic power in new ways? How can this create new opportunities for businesses to thrive? And what does that look like? So these six elements of the investment thesis in the Pacific, again, they were meant to be a lens, a lens to look at the Pacific and say, what more is possible? And if you saw a different future, if you could check your bias about the future, if you could check your bias about the role of women in that future, if you could check your bias from a colonial perspective about how you see the Pacific, how then could we identify opportunities that value the economic strength in the region and invested appropriately. I will say the lesson learned through all of this is I think as we were starting this journey in Pacific Rise, we were very much looking for an investment thesis that could prove scale growth and high growth companies. And in that, we really did turn out to be wrong. We're invested in essentially replicating the current trends within the impact investing market, which was looking at high growth tech companies and others that could scale, 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 scale. And in the end, what we stepped back with and probably learned hardest is we need to fix the capital. We need to fix what kind of capital is making in investments to ensure that those investments are aligned with the actual needs in community, in the economy and shift. And in through that, this investment thesis stayed important. It continued to guide our thinking, but throughout it, 
it was not a logic that would lead us to high growth companies, but rather a logic that would lead us to locally driven solutions. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.